the Old Testament people of Israel's hope was for the coming of the Messiah, who we know was Jesus, born in that stable of Bethlehem. But our hope, we don't need hope for that. We, we know that's already happened, but our hope is in his return as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That line's in my sermon today, too. I'm going to be reflecting on the theme of hope. And that theme is, as I said earlier, one of those traditional of the four themes that are often looked at in the Advent season. And hope is so very, very important to us. I invite you to turn to a Bible if you're at home or whether you're here and take it out, even though the words will probably be projected on the screen. But keep that Bible open because we're going to be looking at some powerful teachings from Psalm 122 and from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. And, and as I said to the council members in the room downstairs earlier, I said, boy, you guys gave signed me some pretty powerful texts today for this sermon on hope. And those t- texts have words in them that are thrown around an awful lot today in Christian media and even outside Christian media, especially from Psalm 122, which says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lots of that going out there right now. And then in Isaiah 2, in these last days, we'll be doing a little teaching on that here this morning. And as we go into this, before I read the psalm and have a prayer, I'm just going to say something about, you know, that, that song from Leonard Cohen, a version of it. When he passed away a few years ago, everybody seemed to be singing that song or versions of it in the church. There's, there's an Easter version, there's a Christmas version. But in that song, it gets at the heart of who Leonard Cohen actually was. He was a man who struggled mightily with his his faith. He was perhaps Canada's most famous person of Jewish origin that we ever produce as a country. Well known all around the world. Did you know what his last name means? We say it Cohen. It's a Hebrew word. It means priest. And he, in a way, saw himself as a man who could proclaim some truths about his Jewish faith, which he abandoned that time, but always returned to. And I watched him one time as he was, he was in, in Israel, and he was doing some singing and concerts there, and, and he actually at one point was invited by the priests of the town where he was to, to raise his hands and give the people of Israel the Aaronic blessing. You know the one, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so on. And it was extremely powerful when he did that, and he said, I felt like a priest. But the song he always sang was Hallelujah. And all those secular artists who have sung that song, especially after his death, I wonder if they know what they were singing. And he explained it this way. He says, they need to know that it means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Psalm 122 calls us to praise the Lord. So that's a very fitting song. A couple of the other songs we sang this morning have the the name, the term Emmanuel in them. And that I'm going to reflect on a bit in this Sermon on Hope because... The promise of hope, the very center of that promise, is what Emmanuel means. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning here in Athens Church to to worship you, to praise your holy name, and to reflect on, on hope in a world that needs that more than ever. But Lord, we just ask that you will bless the reading of your word, that the words that are are in there, but also what we reflect on this morning on these important things that that help us to look forward in hope to the day of your return. We ask that you guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 122, it's one of these so-called Psalms of Ascents, and it's believed that David was the author. 
I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to to praise the name of the Lord. In other words, hallelujah, according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment. Pay attention to that one. I'm I'm coming back to that. The thrones of of judgment. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of our Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5, the heading in the NIV says, The Mountain of the Lord. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Jerusalem and Judah. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. The promise of hope. Recently, Reverend Larry Dornboss, who is a CRC pastor and a denominational leader in the CRC, wrote four quite brief articles that are entitled, The Death of Hope. He wrote them for the Church Leadership Center, which is an organization tasked with helping to identify and and educate leaders for effectively serving the church while engaging with our broader world out there, and to do that with a a biblical Christian missional emphasis and focus. Now, to do that well requires striving to understand what motivates and drives people in our society and culture, trying to, to understand what their desires and their aspirations are, all along with trying to understand and address their fears and their concerns. That's not an easy undertaking in a deeply troubled and confused and chaotic world where, to to quote a certain political leader in our country, everything feels broken. And when everything feels that way, even even hope is in trouble. As Reverend Dornboss's opening statement in those articles reveals, saying this, there is a painful reality in North America. Hope is draining away. While this reality is true of all age groups, it is particularly true of those who are young. There is a sense that the future is bleak, perhaps even doomed. If there is no future, there is no hope. It's not 
it's not just North America that is afflicted with this painful reality. It's worldwide. However, the biblical promise and message of hope that is communicated well into this reality of diminishing hope can lift people up out of that malaise of hopelessness. And Christians, we we understand that this message and this promise of hope is, is anchored in the person identified in Isaiah 7 verse 14 as Emmanuel. A word, a term that means God with us. And, and that meaning is the locus of the truth that keeps hope from draining away in a world so full of all kinds of stuff that produces hopelessness. And that, that leads us into reflecting on our Bible text today. You see, feelings of hopelessness and, and, and hope draining away is really nothing new in human experience. Psalm 122 comes to us from a time when things were actually quite good for the people of Israel. From the biblical narrative, we know that Israel, led by the great King David, was in its heyday 3,000 years ago. Their enemies had pretty much been subdued. Jerusalem had been made Israel's capital city, and, and, and it was the heart of Israel's worship of God. And perhaps when this psalm was being written, David was preparing for the building of the temple of God in Jerusalem. See, that, that wasn't there yet, not in David's time. That would happen when, when Solomon came. But David was preparing for that. Life in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem was good. And this this psalm recognizes that. But it also hints that things could get worse. Today, alongside Psalm 122, we also have the message of Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5, which is repeated almost verbatim in Micah 4, verses 1 through 5. And and those texts have parallels to the message of Psalm 122, along with prophetic statements about things that haven't happened yet fully. And all of it is embedded in what we call messianic prophecy. Prophecies that that still add to the confidence that, that undergirds our hope, like the many already fulfilled prophecies about the coming of Jesus, Messiah, that we celebrate every Christmas season. Now, we have to remember that three centuries, 320, 325 years or so, had passed between the time of David and the time of Isaiah. And things had most certainly gone for the worse. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC, and that was right in the middle of Isaiah's time. The kingdom of Judah and and Jerusalem were under almost constant threat from Various enemies, they lasted another 136 years, but, but they were always, it seemed, under constant threat. And that, well, that came true. And Isaiah, in his book, if we read it, he speaks for God. He, he levies many, many warnings and proclamations about the dire fate of a people who turn away from God. A fate that did come true in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And most of the rest of the people of Israel, well, they were spread out. They were dispersed throughout the foreign lands held by their conquerors, and only a little remnant was left in Jerusalem. So in the reality of that, we can well imagine that for for many, many people, their hope was draining away. But God's faithful people found solace, and they found hope in God's promises pointing to a better future coming, when when that promised Messiah would arrive, and, 
and he would begin his reign. And their hope at that time was assisted by remembering words in, in, in Psalms like Psalm 122 and, and those positive proclamations of prophets like in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, where, where the promise of hope is embedded. The promise of a coming Savior who would remain God with us forever. So these, these texts can bolster our hope too, even though they were, they were written so long ago. Now first, something especially pertinent for us today is that both contain references to the last days. It's subtly hinted at in Psalm 122, verse 5's mention of the thrones for judgment. And it is rather overtly declared in Isaiah 5, 2, where Isaiah describes what he saw concerning the last days. So we know this was a vision for, for Isaiah. He saw something about the last days. And based on, on what is happening in the world today, and especially in the Middle East, in that current war between Israel and Hamas, there are, as I said earlier, many, many voices, both Christian and non-Christian, that are asking, that are, are, are wondering and speculating if we are now living in the last days. I think the pervasive sense of hopelessness afflicting our world compels contemplating that question. Everything does feel broken or kind of broken or, or it's headed that way. The future does look bleak and the world seems to sense that the end is near. And as Lovren Dornbach said, it, it seems to be afflicting the young more because, well, the young for at least 30 years now have been hearing doom and gloom messages. If it isn't the climate that's going to get us, it's going to be a pandemic that's going to get us, or it's going to be war and nuclear and that's all going to get us. We're where is our future? And our young people have been getting that message for so long that well, we can understand why they feel hopeless. But it does feel to many people like the end is near. And, and that can even be illustrated with something the world's atomic scientists created back in 1947. It's called the Doomsday Clock. Uh, this clock, and you got to remember, this is 1947 just coming out of the the nuclear horrors of the Second World War with the nuclear bombs and the potential that people saw of, of destruction and so on. Well, that clock was designed and developed by those atomic scientists back then to warn about how close the world could be to man-made destruction. And to that nuclear threat, you know, we add the climate threat and we add the pandemic threats and we add things like that. So, so there's a sense out there that man is going to destroy this world. We're going to destroy ourselves and we're getting ever closer and closer. And the doomsday clock was set at 17 minutes to midnight in 1991. 17 minutes. Midnight is the moment of the end. Since then, that clock has moved ever closer and closer and closer to midnight. Back in January of this year, it was set with 90 seconds to go. And pessimistic people declare there is no stopping it now. Our situation is hopeless. Boy, I'm a prophet of positive stuff this morning. <laughs> we'll get the good news. Now, although the world asks that question in a sense of hopelessness, Christians, we raise it in hope. Hope that is based in God's promises about the return of Jesus as Lord of all lords and King of all kings. The time when, when this broken world may be replaced with a new and a perfect one. And that's because we understand that only the coming of Jesus can solve the brokenness of this world. In light of that, 
Let's remember what God's Word teaches about the last days because there's a lot of stuff out there about the last days that's kind of weird and wild and even a little wacky. So we need to know what God's Word says. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and through various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Hmm. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. We know who the Son is. And in 1 John 2, verse 18, the apostle says, Dear children, this is the last hour. This is the last hour of the last days, according to what it says in the New Testament. So in God's clock of this world's history, we have been in the last hour of the last days ever since that time when Jesus began remedying the world's brokenness about 2,000 years ago. When he did what had to be done to move people, God's people, from, from slavery to sin, as Paul puts it, to the freedom of salvation. And all of that was accomplished at that pivotal moment at the cross of Calvary. So the Bible's answer to the question, are we now in the last days, is, yes, we are. In fact, we're in the last hour of the last days. But we haven't reached that final moment. A moment that's prophetically pointed toward in Psalm 122, verse 5's unusual reference to the thrones of judgment. We have to note that that word thrones is pluralized here. It's a thrones of judgment. Now, I spent some time searching in the Bible trying to, what does this mean, the thrones of judgment? And I've only been able to find three references to those plural thrones in the context of the thrones of the house of David. I can't even find reference to plural thrones in any kingdom. The first is here in Psalm 122. The next is in Matthew 19, verse 28, where Jesus says this to his disciples. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, there's a prophetic statement looking forward, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, Jesus, sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And that gets reinforced in Revelation 20, verse 4, where John says, I saw thrones, not a throne. Yeah, there was a throne with God sitting on it, but he said, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. So Psalm 122, verse 5, compels us to look past its immediate context and, and the throne of David in Jerusalem. It compels us to look past Isaiah's time, past the first advent of Jesus when he was born in that stable in Bethlehem, past our time today all the way to that day when the promise of hope is fulfilled with the return of Jesus to Jerusalem. And that's what the Bible says. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. In light of the constant battles and what's going on over there, Jerusalem will not fall. Jerusalem will remain because Jerusalem is needed for Jesus to come back. Because the Bible tells us Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem, not to Toronto or Ottawa or New York or Washington or London or Paris or anywhere. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. And on that day, the promise of hope will be fulfilled. Now, as we contemplate all this, we remember that Psalm 122 was written in a time of Israel's ascendancy. And Jerusalem was the place symbolically aligned with the personal presence of God. 
And in those days, the men, especially the men of Israel, were required to travel to Jerusalem for three religious festivals and ceremonies. They were held in that personal presence of God because it was believed that God was there in a particular way in Jerusalem. And as they traveled to Jerusalem, and many times they took their families, they would reflect on and sing the psalms that are identified as the psalms of ascents. Those are Psalms 120 through 134. Now, the first three of these psalms reveal a kind of a progression of a journey. Psalm 120 starts at the beginning of that pilgrimage to Jerusalem with a lament, recognizing that God's people lived among enemies who wanted their destruction, and they looked forward to the journey to Jerusalem and worshiping in the presence of God. Hmm, Psalm 120, things haven't changed much for people of Israel in the land of Israel. In fact, I've seen that text from Psalm 120 spoken of in several media stories talking about we live in amongst the tents of Kedar and amongst the enemies of God. But we think about that psalm. The men of Israel, some of their, they would, that was the first to start their journey to Jerusalem for those pilgrimages. And then Psalm 121 takes us into that journey. We can imagine people streaming from every corner of the land of Israel, all heading up to Jerusalem, which is in the center. And that Psalm 121 declares their trust that God would care for them along the way. Now, Israel's not a big country. And we think about, well, I mean, you can drive from the farthest corners of Israel to Jerusalem in a couple hours. But if you're walking, it's a long and sometimes very hazardous journey. And so the people expressed their trust that God would bring them safely there. And then Psalm 122 describes their arrival at the gates of the city. And there, you can kind of picture them, they arrive. They're standing in the very gates of the city that was the center of their hope. And they say, pray. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They've arrived, but let's continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Praying for its shalom and its security and its prosperity because Jerusalem represents Emmanuel, God being with his people. So, so this is a prayer that is anchored in hope. Hope that God would always be with his people because that meant that they would enjoy peace, security, and prosperity and not just in Jerusalem but throughout the land of God's people. But now we have to go for a moment to Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 where Ezekiel describes a vision that would have horrified the people of Israel because the prophet describes the presence of God leaving Jerusalem, clearly informing the people that God was no longer with them. And that meant his peace was no longer with them. That meant the security was no longer with them. The prosperity was no longer with them because when God leaves, he takes that with him too. And God would not return until as the prophets declared in all of their messianic prophecies, the Messiah came. And once again, the descendants of Jacob, all of the tribes of Israel, would freely, as Psalm 122 puts it, go to the house of the Lord, to hallelujah, to praise the name of the Lord. And you know, that was and that still is the content of Old Testament Judaism's hope Worshipping the Lord as a united people in a peaceful Jerusalem with no enemies in sight. Not there yet. And Isaiah reinforces that hope while vastly broadening out that picture 
that's given to us first in Psalm 122. Isaiah takes us to after the advent of the Messiah. But remember, Isaiah lived several hundred years before Jesus came. So this is messianic prophecy. He's taking us to the time when in the last days, he says, all nations, all nations will stream to Jerusalem. But he doesn't call it Jerusalem. He calls it the mountain of the Lord's temple. A mountain that is established as the highest of the mountains and is exalted above the hills. Now, what is he telling us with this mountain picture? Well, although it is true that Jerusalem is built on high ground in the land of Israel, it's at about average 2,500 feet elevation, 785 meters above sea level. But that's not the highest ground in Israel, not by a long shot. Mount Hermon in the north of Galilee is 7,336 feet high, or 2,814 meters. So Jerusalem is it's only a third of that. And there are many, many, we know, much higher mountains in the world. So, so this term, Isaiah uses, this mountain of the Lord must symbolically represent something else. It's a metaphor for something or someone. And from the New Testament, we can only infer that it refers to Jesus, the Messiah who came. And we know this is so because Isaiah describes how many people, it's right there in the text, many people, not people from Israel, some of them too, but many people, people from all nations, but not all people, will be saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of of the God of Jacob. What does the psalm say? I lift up my eyes to the hills. I raise my eyes to the mountain. We don't look for salvation at the top of a mountain. We look for the one the mountain represents. We re- Jesus, our Savior. And these people who, who stream from all nations to, to, to that mountain, to Jesus, they will be saying, He, He will teach us His ways and we may walk in His paths. Interesting. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. What's that talking about? It's interesting. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to worship. No, no, wait a minute. Let's go to learn. Let's be taught by Him. The worship comes later. It comes along with. But they're going there to learn so that they can walk in the paths of Jesus. And all of this, Isaiah says, takes place in the last days, the the days when when God speaks and teaches through his Son. Now, all of this has been happening ever since Jesus' first advent. We know that if we know biblical history, even world history. That time when Jesus taught and he ministered and he did what he came to do for the salvation of all of his people, the time of his teaching, his miracles that still teach and guide us today, his journey to the cross of Calvary where he gave himself for the forgiveness of our sin on that cross and his resurrection from the grave and his establishment of the church and his return to his throne in heaven. The church has been following that instruction in Isaiah ever since. And Jesus, when he prepared for returning to heaven, we have to remember he gave his church our marching orders proclaimed in Matthew 28, 19 through 20's command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Let us go to the mountain 
of the Lord. So he will teach us and we can walk in his paths. And the church is told to go and teach everything about Jesus. Teaching how to walk in his paths. Isaiah 2 verses 1 through 5 is already pointing to that happening. And as the church has been doing that, people from all over the world come to know Jesus, learning to walk in his ways while worshiping him as Lord and Savior and King. Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled while it is pointing to the fulfillment of the promise of hope. Fulfillment that will take place on the day of Jesus' second advent when his presence will be fully and completely with us in person. On that most glorious day, Jesus is going to sit on his royal throne in Jerusalem in the, what the Bible in Revelation calls the new Jerusalem that will descend from heaven. Jesus' throne will be there. He'll be sitting there and it says he will judge the nations. And as Isaiah describes, there is not going to be any dispute anymore. There's not going to be any war or conflict among people. All of it is going to be replaced with true peace, security, prosperity flowing from Jerusalem in a way no one has ever seen yet because our God will be with us in glory forevermore. You see, that's, that's what we look forward to in that promise of hope. And so we are encouraged to continue praying for the peace of Jerusalem. The peace that comes when Jesus, who is revealed to us in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, as our wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it with justice and righteousness from that time on. And the greatness of his kingdom and peace will never end. So, anticipating that day, And anchored in that promise of hope, our prayer really boils right down to this. It's in Revelation 22, verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Come, Lord Jesus. And in that statement, Lord, we we give voice to our hope. Knowing that as your word teaches, you are coming someday maybe soon. And that on that day, this world will be restored. And for your people, it will be truly wonderful. But until that day arrives, we have a lot of work to do. We're to continue proclaiming the promise of our hope, the message of the gospel, the truth about you and who you are and what you have done and what you are doing and what you will still do. And so, Lord, help us in the midst of looking forward in the promise of hope that we will do what we can to proclaim the good news and show our neighbors, many of whom are struggling with hopelessness, that there is hope in this world, but not hope in human powers and kings and prime ministers and presidents and political systems. Our hope is in you, the King of heaven, our Lord, our Savior, our brother in our faith. And we praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name alone, amen.